If you have your Bibles, if you'll turn with me to 1 Samuel 15, and we're kind of in between a couple of sermon series. We just finished up the pillars of our faith, and thank you for all the emails you've sent to me, how life-changing that has been. Uh, and we're about ready to jump into 1 Timothy, uh, the book of 1 Timothy throughout the summer. And here is what I'm trying to do, and here I really feel like God has led us, is that We've been looking at the church and leadership in the church, making sure we're building on the right foundation, making sure 1 Timothy is going to tell us a lot of roles in the church and leadership according to God's word. And this morning, we're going to look at failure in leadership, and we're going to look uh, to the life of King Saul. And so one uh, little chapter that tells us so much about leadership gone awry. So, but as we get, begin again, I just... Uh, have an announcement, a confession of how much I love music. Does anybody else love music? I, I'm, a, I'm a music junkie. I mean, like the first thing I do when I get in the car is I plug in my phone to make sure Apple Play is hooked up. I usually have a Bluetooth speaker in about every room of the house. And I just love songs. And I, I love music. I especially love songs that tell stories. And so there's a certain genre of songs that tell great stories that for years I've made fun of. I've made fun of country music, and I think I've made a public confession that I, I actually like country music. I like a lot of their songs. I got a few of my favorites. Why? Because they're great storytelling, typically, uh, put to music. But one of the best songwriters, he's, he's not really country, but he could fall in that genre uh, of my lifetime is Jimmy Buffett. Any Jimmy Buffett fans here? Uh, maybe Margaritaville comes to mind or some other great songs. But one of my favorites, I love it the way he tells stories. And the son of a son of a sailor. Uh, you can just kind of make yourself in that story as he's talking about a life of a son of a son of a sailor. And, and he has this lyric that I just love. He says, and as a dreamer of dreams and a traveling man, I've chalked up many a miles, read dozens of books about heroes and crooks, and I've learned both from both, both of their styles. So he's read dozens of books on heroes and crooks and reading both about both of their lives, he's learned a lot. Well, one can learn a lot when you read stories of heroes and you read stories of crooks. Well, again, the greatest story ever told, the greatest storytelling is not country music, it's God, because why God is the ultimate storyteller. We love stories because why God has made us in his image and God is the ultimate storyteller. He tells a story through creation of all the things he makes. Scripture will tell us that creation has a speech of its own that declares God's glory like Psalm 19 tells us. But he also has given us a word and he's given us this word of his, this true inerrant, infallible word that will never lead us astray. But he didn't give us a textbook. He gave us a love story. And in his love story, it's going to be, uh, tells us so much of who we are and who mu how much he is. And this book is chock full of many crooks and really just one overarching hero. So it's not a story of many of hooks, uh, crooks and, and heroes. It's a story of lots of crooks, lots of sinners, lots of people needing grace, and one overarching hero named Jesus. But the beautiful thing about God's word is it's a true, true story for all of us. And by God's grace, we can find ourselves in this, in, our, in this story of his. It's a living story. It teaches us about our world. And oh, do we need to know about it. 
it teaches us our world is our world is broken. And our world is broken because of sin and rebellion from God. And everything that we see, even the beauty of God's creation, is groaning to be set free. Everything is broken out there. You have never set your eyes on something that hasn't been affected by the fall. So why are worlds at war? Why is politics so messed up? Why is life so hard? Even in family dynamics, God tells us the world's broken. And it's broken because of rebellion and sin. But it's not just the world out there that's a problem, right? It's the world in here. It's my own life's a mess. And my own life is broken. And I can't make heads and tails of it half the time. And I want to do good. And I usually do the wrong thing. And it tells us that sin has affected the inside world as much as it has affected the outside world. But it tells us of a Savior who loves us. And a Savior who rescues us. And it all points to Jesus. So this, this story teaches us about our world. It teaches us about ourselves. And it teaches us about our God. And all of that points beautifully to J-E-S-U-S, -S, Jesus. This morning, we're going to look at a story of King Saul. He is the first king of Israel. We're going to learn from his failure and God's rejection of Saul and why God rejected him. Now, here's the deal. We got one sermon in 1 Samuel 15. It's like I'm parachuting the entire church into this chapter. So the only way that this story makes sense is let me give you a little bit of context. Will you bear with me as I tell you a little bit more about the entire God, uh, story of God? And then we're going to narrow it in and talk about the story of 1 Samuel. Let me give you uh, the context of the Bible. The Bible tells us, it's really one of the major themes of the Bible is it's in search of a godly king. The first five books of the Bible are called the Pentateuch. It's, it's written by Moses. It starts with the very beginning. In the beginning, God, and he creates all things. And it tells us about how we're created in God's image. And it tells us how we have rebelled and fallen against God. And, and without, with that fall and separation from God, how everything was affected. But it tells us about a man of faith named Abraham and a nation of faith named Israel. And it tells us that they all point to a savior named Jesus. So you have the first five books, and then you get to the book of Joshua. And after the first five books, you have God's people being released from slavery in Egypt, and they're heading to the promised land. And the book of Joshua is going to tell us how God's people are going to take over, and they're going to have the conquest of this promised land. And then you have the book of Judges, which is an interesting time where the people keep messing up. And God raises up a savior, a judge to free them, but they keep messing up. But it says something very interesting in the book of Judges a few times. It says this. It says, in those days, there was no king in Israel and everybody did what was right in their own eyes. Now, let me tell you something. When everybody does what's right in their own eyes, it's not good, right? So it's going to tell there's an overarching problem. The problem is there's no king in Israel. There's no one who's reigning it in. There's no one who's setting the example. And because there's no king in Israel, what has happened is people are just doing whatever it feels right. And that doesn't ever bode very well. Then after this incredible book of Judges, which really, the book of Judges is an argument that we need a godly king. Then you have this beautiful little book, one of the coolest stories in all of the Bible named Ruth. Man, it's a phenomenal four chapters. Read it. It's an incredible love story. And the book of Ruth is kind of interesting because it's the time of Judges. And it's like, well, why, why are you giving us this story? 
And it's a story of a woman of faith who's a Moabite. And Moabites, well, they were Israelites. They were, they were kind of on the outside. And they were kind of not looked at very, very warmly and embraced by God's people. But this Moabite named Ruth, she was godly. And she was righteous. And she believed. And she was going to be the grandmother of David. He's a godly king that's on his way. So the book of Ruth is like, hey, there's a godly king coming. His name's David. And he's got Moabite blood. But it's okay because she's really awesome. And then we get uh, to the book of Samuel. And the book of Samuel is going to say that people are going to say, complain to God, say, hey, God, we want a king like all the other nations. Will you please give us a king like all the other nations? Remember, judges, everybody was just going crazy because they had no king. And now in the book of Samuel, they say, hey, we want a king. Sounds like a good thing. But they said something tragic. They said, we want a king just like the other nations. God's people were saying, we don't want to be different than everybody else. We want to be just like everybody else. And we want to live our lives just like the world lives our lives. We want, to, we want to rule and govern just like them. Can you give us a king like them? And it broke God's heart. And we're going to see when you pick a king who's physically strong but spiritually weak, you get somebody like Saul. But again, God says, listen, eventually I want a king who has a heart for God. And that's going to raise up to David. So now you're going to get to, that's the context getting you here. Let me give you the context to 1 Samuel 15 so this story makes sense. So this is the rejection of the worldly king Saul. But there's context to the story. God is going to tell Saul through the prophet Samuel some really difficult things. It's one of those things that you and I read in scripture and say, how do we believe this stuff? I'm just being honest. We're going to read this and you're going to think, this is a little bit crazy. Because God tells Saul something simple, but something very difficult. He says, I want you to go to the Amalekites, and I want you to wipe them out. I want you to wipe them out, not just some of them, all of them. And I want you to wipe out their livestock too. You think, wait a minute. Come on, God, you're loving and you're merciful. What in the world are you doing? How could you say this? But you see that God is asking King Saul, I want you to execute judgment on the Amalekites. But we wouldn't understand the story if there wasn't a background. So let me tell you that the background to the Amalekites, there's a story here. So God doesn't just randomly say, hey, these these people here, take them out. So the Amalekites were a people that fought against God's people right after they left Egypt. And if you read Exodus chapter 17... Uh, you will read that God's people just finally get set free from slavery. They're heading to the promised land. And these Amalekites come up and attack them. And they try to wipe them out. And as a matter of fact, some of you who know the Bible, you'll remember the story. So Moses is going to go up and pray for the army. He's going to go pray for them. And he's going to send Joshua, the warrior, out there to fight these Amalekites. And he's going to say, you fight, I pray. And I'm going to lift my hands to heaven. And when I, when I lift my hands up heaven, guess what happens? He's praying, and they're winning. And he's getting tired. He's like, oh. And he starts drooping his hands, and they start losing. So they got a guy named Aaron, a priest, and her. And they're lifting up his hands. Haven't you heard the story? And they're setting things under them so that they'll have a victory in battle. And after the battle, the Lord says something pretty amazing. When his hands were raised, they were victorious. When they came down, they weren't. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with a sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, 
that I will utterly blot out of memory the Amalekites from under heaven. For Moses built an altar and called on the name of the Lord. He says, so God says, hey, listen, they fought you. You're heading to the promised land. Write it down. That we're going to remember this. Deuteronomy repeats it. Deuteronomy 25 says this. Remember what the Amalekites did to you on the way when you came out of Egypt. Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies around you, and the land the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of the Amalekites from under heaven. You shall not forget. Whoa! So here you have context that God is saying, okay, Saul, it's time. Now is the time to execute judgment. And what do we got to think about this? Two things I want to say even before we read it. One is this. God will protect his own. You saw my own up here today. And you know what a father does when, when his own are threatened. And you know what a father does when he raises up to battle for his family. Men, do you know, you know what that is? This is what, this is what God says. These are my own people. They finally got out of slavery. And here come these knuckleheads, the Amalekites, to try to wipe them out. God will protect his own. And here's another thing we've got to realize about the God who is. He's a God of judgment. And if you know him, and you don't love him, and you don't embrace him, judgment is coming. He's filled with grace and mercy. And my goodness, if you turn to him, he'll always embrace you. But don't think that he's not a God of judgment. He is. Okay, one more little piece. The, 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 the Kenites are in this story. And they are hanging out with the Amalekites. And Saul's going to say, get away from these people. Why? Because, really cool, the Kenites, uh, Moses' father-in-law is Jethro. This is who he is. They bless God's people. Those who bless God's people will be a blessing. Um, remember, this is a different time that we live in. This is a theocracy. This is different. God will never come to the church and say, wipe out a group of people. On the other side of the cross, this will never happen. But what I want to see is failed leadership. I know I gave you a lot of background were these things. Saul fails to obey God's commandments. He fails to live for God's glory. And he fails to display godly repentance. Whew. You ready to read this story? All right, let's read 1 Samuel chapter 15. This is an absolute amazing story of God. Um, and we'll see failed leadership. Hear the word of the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people of Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, or the Lord of the angel armies, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Whew. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Tilium, 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then, this, then Saul said to the Ken, Kenites, remember this is Moses' uh, uh, father-in-law's people, go, depart, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from the, among the Amalekites. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Hivalah uh, as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. 
But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. And that was uh, all that was despised and worthless they devoted to destruction. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I've made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me, has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. And Saul rose early to meet Saul in the morning. And it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, uh, he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. And Samuel said to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be to you, the Lord. Uh, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is the bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of oxen that I hear? Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, Stop. I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, Speak. And Samuel will say, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek. I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took, but the people took the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifice as in obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. So Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sins, my sin, and return with me, that I may bow before the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return for you, for you have, been re you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe and tore it, and Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Then he says, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and behold Israel and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul and Saul bowed before the Lord. Then Samuel said, Bring here to me Agog, the king of the Amalekites. And Agog came to him cheerfully. Agog said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, As your sword, Agog, has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. 
And Samuel hacked Agog to pieces before the Lord in Gilgag. Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went to his house in, in Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father God, come and make sense of your word for your glory and for our good. May the things that I say that are wrong or merely my opinion fall away, but the things that are said that are true and point to Jesus make us more like him. And it's in his matchless name that we pray. Amen. Okay, let me just point out a couple of things of failed leadership. The first thing we see about Samuel is he fails to obey God's commandments. Again, in verse 10, Samuel says, The word of the Lord came to Samuel, and he says, I've regretted that I've made it Saul king, for he turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. In this passage, it says a couple times, he rejected God's word. He has not obeyed the voice of the Lord. But what do we see in bad, failed leadership? He declares himself faithful. In verse 13, he says, I've performed the command of the Lord. In verse 20, he says, I've obeyed the voice of the Lord. In verse 20, he says, I've gone on commission, uh, on mission for the Lord. Let me tell you what failed leadership does. It takes God's clear word and it twists it to make it acceptable to us. When God says clearly to have no other gods before him, he means it. When God says clearly that this is what marriage should be, he means it. When God says that we should live for the glory of our great God alone, he means it. And it doesn't mean that we can say, well, I, I did follow God. I kind of know him. And, and I did some of the things he's required of me. And this is what sin is going to do. It's going to try to lower God's standard so that we can feel like we've met it. But all of us have failed to do that. It then proclaims his actions as noble. When you think of what uh, Saul has done, he was instructed, wipe it all out. So what does Samuel say? What is this bleeding of sheep that I hear? What are you doing? And he says, oh, it's noble. We've kept the best animals. We did it so we could sacrifice to the Lord. Aren't we great at making excuses? I got to tell you, I've recognized this. When I read this, I see my life. When it's pointed out that I'm wrong, what I usually do is want to make an excuse saying, well, I, I really did most of what you said. And then I want to turn it and try to make myself noble. Well, I did it for a greater cause. Um, and how crazy it is that he tries to say, I've saved thee so we could sacrifice for the Lord. Then he blames others. He plays the blame game. Have we not all done that from the very first fall? When sin is brought to us, what do we do? Well, it's their fault. It's their fault. He blames the people. Well, listen, I, I wanted to do it, but the people, they, they kept all the animals. They disobeyed. What a complete failure. He failed to obey God's commands. We need to get a better king. Not only that, he fails to live for God's glory. When, when, when Saul goes, uh, or Samuel goes to find Saul after the battle, guess what Saul was doing? He built a monument to himself. Our lives should not be building a monument to ourselves. It shouldn't be about our fame. It shouldn't be about our fortune. It shouldn't be about our retirement. Life is not about us. How much of our pursuit is building a monument to our own name? This is what he does. He wins a victory for the Lord. And what's he do? And not only does he say he went and he built a monument, he literally 
and the Hebrew makes it sound. He had a parade. He had a victory parade. He wasn't singing God's praises. He was saying, look at me. I have slain the thousands. I'm Saul. I'm your king. I'm going to make life all about me. When we have a leader who makes life all about them, that's not a godly leader. And we see one who completely missed it. He makes a monument to himself instead of singing praises to the Lord. He fears the voice of people over the commands of, of verse 24. When he finally realizes he sins, he says this, I feared the people. You never want to have a good leader who is his fearful of men. And I got to tell you, that's one of my biggest sins. In reality, I look back through my life and my ministry, and I've realized so many times I've heard the voice of people over the voice of God. So many times the decisions that you've made because I fear what people might think of me instead of really caring of what God has asked me to do. The fear of people is a strong thing. But God who wants leaders who aren't people pleasers. And again, I get that. I get what Saul was saying. He desires the honor of people over the obedience to the Lord. Even when he's in the midst of repenting, he says, honor me. I want to be honored in front of the people. I want to be seen as good and strong in their eyes. He desires honor over obedience. And then he pounces on the spoils of this world versus giving the glory of God. It says, it's interesting, I love the Hebrew, he pounced on it. He saw the victories, uh, the spoils of victory. He says, I want them for my own instead of giving God glory. He, not only that, he, he fails to display godly repentance. Paul is going to say that there's two types of, of repentance in 2 Corinthians verse 7. He says there's a godly sorrow that leads to repentance and salvation, and there's a worldly sorrow that leads to death. Have you not, parents, seen it with your kids? Have you ever heard them say they're sorry? Why? Because they're caught. They're sorry. Why? Because they're being punished. Are they really sorry because they've done wrong? 2 Corinthians 7.10 says this, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereby worldly grief only produces death. Twice in this passage, Saul's going to say, I've sinned. But both times, it's a worldly sorrow. He's not really sorry. He's just sorry he's not going to be king anymore. Why? Because he first seeks the pardon uh, over from man instead of God. He says to Saul, I'm sorry, he says to Samuel, will you forgive me? Think of David. When David sinned, and man did he sin, he sinned against Bathsheba, and he wound up killing Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. When he was confronted, he said, I sinned against God and God alone. When we sin, when we mess up, it's against the holy God. And we see that he wasn't really sorry about what he did to God. And not only that, he seeks the honor of the people over the forgiveness of God. He goes, okay, I'm sinned, but make sure you hold me up and honor me. True repentance doesn't seek honor. True repentance embraces humility. So clearly we have a king that's not a good king in leadership. But I want to point out one thing as we close. It's this. It's the blessings of a true king. We need a king who has, would obey God. Does anybody know who that king is? It's Jesus. It's the king of kings and the Lord of lords who came to say, everything the Father has given to me, I've done, who completely fulfills the requirements of God, a king who would execute God's judgment on his enemies. Guess what? It's Jesus. An incredible thing about this is Jesus is the judgment. 
He took enemies like us and made us his children. Why? On dying on the cross. Jesus obeyed and Jesus was the sacrifice. And in, that, in Christ Jesus, we could be forgiven and free. In the beginning, God gave life to Adam and says, Adam, if you obey me, you will live forever. I'll give you life. And he failed. And God provided a sacrifice to cover Adam's sin. And now Jesus is the one who says, I will obey and give you life. I will offer a sacrifice and pay for your sins. This is the greatest story ever. And again, I, I, as I read this story in my devotionals, and I was in between sermon series, it's like, our people have to know this. What is true godly leadership? It's seen in Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And this is the story that will make us want to sing. Let us pray. Father God, I just thank you so much for your word. And again, your word in the right context is so beautiful. And it points to the reality of who you are a good and gracious God, but a God who will bring judgment against sin. And God, we thank you for Jesus, the one who has come to do your commandments perfectly so that the holy God can be satisfied and that your will is done, but to die an atoning death, that our sins can be forgiven and we can be yours forever. Oh God, we thank you that we see the story of Saul and what, what it looks like to have leadership it is a worldly leadership. And God, the beautiful contrast between him and Jesus. Oh God, may King's Chapel always be a place, a place that celebrates who Jesus is as King of Kings and Lord of Lords, a place that you would raise up godly leaders. God, godly leaders to this place that, that won't make excuse for sin, that will live not to build monuments to themselves, but will, will live for the glory of our great God that we would build on Christ that one foundation, that God, that we would flourish and bear fruit for your glory. We pray in Christ's name, amen.